Welcome to episode number 38 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we welcome on recurring guest Joe Doyle, a senior analyst at Future Stars, joins us to talk the Mariners draft, which happened this past weekend. We have also have our Mariners storylines, which we talk about the home run derby and the all-star game, which we got to experience. Super fun being down there at the ballpark. It'll be fun to break down. And just a reminder, if you guys are listening on Apple and Spotify, make sure to go over to our YouTube channel, go hit subscribe, go give us a review, go comment, like, everything. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to go over to our audio platforms too. Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, give us five stars. The five-star rating really helps. And make sure to download the episodes as well. And as always, if you want to catch our social media content, which we do a lot of, you can do so on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you to this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast recording here on Thursday, July 13th. Of course, this podcast part of the Just Baseball Podcast Network and Lyle, I Imagine this would be the case, but after four days of being out at All-Star Game festivities, I am wiped. I said I was wiped on Sunday. You better believe after two additional days, I'm wiped now. It's funny. I took Wednesday as a kind of a rest and recovery day. I slept in a little bit. I just took it easy in the morning. I mean, I met up with you and our friend Jeremy in the afternoon, and we still hung out during your last day here before you headed back to Oregon. But... It doesn't change the fact that now Thursday, I'm still dragging, still tired, despite being two days removed from All-Star Week. Man, it takes a toll on you between the sun, all the walking, being outside, all the different activities we were running around doing. As fun as it was, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it is tiring. I think instead of staying up late last night, I think we needed an early bedtime. I, I'm suspecting we did not get the proper rest and recovery on our quote-unquote rest and recovery day on Wednesday. It was improper. We still had fun, but I'm sitting here on a Thursday getting down to work at, oh, about 2 o'clock. I'll tell you what doesn't help with getting through this drag is driving from Seattle to Corvallis, sitting in traffic that adds nearly two hours to your drive, which I spent nearly six hours in the car today getting to back down here which usually should take about four especially going to work in albany it was a lot it was a lot and i'm sitting here we're powering through it we're gonna put out this episode of course you're gonna hear a great conversation with joe doyle where we, where we sound slightly more energetic because that conversation was actually just after noon on wednesday but overall man oh man it is it's gonna be nice to sleep in my own bed tonight i will say that and I'll be right back out at the ballpark this weekend. So it kind of never stops on my end. And listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining about it by any stretch. In fact, when people ask me, are you going to the game as a fan? Or are you going to work? And they'll put quote unquote to work. I always tell them, well, I'm not really working. I mean, technically you are because you're a credential media member and you are doing content. But I say it's fun. Like it's so much fun. I look forward to it every single time I go. So it doesn't really feel like work. That being said, I'm going to have to try very hard to try to catch up on some sleep at some point this weekend because I'll be running around again. So you might have a little bit more of a chance because your work schedule is a little lighter in the summer where I'll be out running around. And you get back-to-back -back weekends at the park too. Well, yeah. Back-to-back-to-back 
no, actually four consecutive weekends doing something baseball related for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a a lot. All in a, all in a good way. Like I said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's incredibly fun. I enjoy every second of it a lot, but it is tiring. That's the only downside. So Lyle, now that the four days have passed, before we get into the stuff that happened on the field, if you're going to think off the top of your mind, what, what was the best part about All-Star Weekend? Outside of what happened on the field, I mean, I would say it's all the people that we got to meet and either talk to, do an interview with, all that stuff. Because there's so many people that come in from out of town for All-Star Week that normally you wouldn't get to see. I'd say there's a handful of baseball events throughout the year where if you attend, that applies where you can see a lot of people you wouldn't otherwise otherwise regularly get to see things like all-star week, like the winter meetings. Actually, that might be about it. It might be those mm-hmm. two events throughout the year where you can the, see people from the world series, probably the world too. series. I mean, well, let's see if we ever get to the point where we can one actually get media passes for it or two just have the money to go because you're right. If that happened, then we'd see a lot of people too, but It's really those two events where you can see all these other people throughout the country that travel all to one spot for something baseball related. We haven't been to an all-star week before this. We were too young to remember 2001 and now we got to do it and we got to see a bunch of people, including, I mean, we met some new people like Matt from the beat of tailgate, who you guys know has a really popular TikTok and Instagram channel. Not only did we do some content with him, he did some content with us. So we should be on his Instagram and TikTok pages at some point in the next few days, which we had a bunch of fun doing. I won't give anything away, but we should be on there. And then we met up with a bunch of people that we already know, and it was always great to catch up with. I mean, we saw Bob Stelton. We saw Mike Lefko, who have been guests on this podcast. It was great to see them. We saw Jake and Jordan from Cespedes Family Barbecue, our friends who do that awesome podcast there and all their content. Great to run into them. Obviously, all the Just Baseball people. I mean, it was it was super fun. I mean, I'd say that's what I took away the most is all the people we got to see and talk to because you don't get to see them that often. Absolutely. And Dave Wyman, too. I'd, I'd never talked to Dave Wyman before. You you a little bit. Dave hosts with Bob on, on 710. H- hadn't met it, but he was as nice as ever when we went to when we went to Hatback to, to see Bob and, and Mike Lefko as well. It was really cool. I do want to give a shout out to the boys at Cespedes Family Barbecue. This hat right here is fucking sick look at this thing they were i think were they giving these away were they selling them i can't remember but i don't think they were selling them i think they were just giving them out to people who enjoy their content enjoy the podcast all that look i mean look at these colors these are sonics colors this is beautiful and this is such a unique hat too i can't imagine there's too many baseball barbacast hats out there, I'm really looking forward to wearing this one. And this is the exact style of hat I like too. It's perfect. You probably, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, you cannot see this hat. So that's your indication to go over to YouTube to check out this hat and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. So you can see our lovely faces while we talk. But this hat is awesome. Awesome. Almost as awesome as Jake and Jordan themselves are. Because yes. you'll see, we we did some content with them this week too, which... By the time this comes out, it should be out in the afternoon on Friday. So you you guys will see that on our social channels then and make sure to go follow those so you can see it. But those guys are awesome. I mean, you guys have probably seen them at some point if you're on social media ever looking at baseball content. They're exactly the same in person as they are on social media. They're really nice. They're outgoing. They love the game. They give great answers. They're funny. And they genuinely like talking to other people, to other baseball fans. So 
it's been great to get to know Jordan. That was the first time we met Jake for an extensive period of time in person, but he's just as cool. And yeah, those guys are great. I always love running into those guys. Like every time I walk away from a conversation with Jordan or now Jake too, I'm always like, man, those guys are the best. And congrats to Jake too. He got engaged the day after the all-star game ended. What a, what a whirlwind of a weekend. Yeah, it really never stops for him. We're talking about us being tired. He's got to get through a whole week of content, and then he's probably got his busiest day of the entire week coming up the day after. Absolutely. All right, Lau, let's get down to the guys actually playing on the field, and let's get to our Mariners storylines. Let's start with the Home Run Derby on Monday night, the one that both you and I were able to attend. Wow, what an event. Do we just start with Julio's first round? I mean, holy shit. Another plug. We've got a vlog coming out in a few days. We vlogged the entire week, all four days, including the home run derby. And let me tell you what, you and I both were losing our shit watching Julio Rodriguez in that first round. You thought he couldn't top 32 from the year before because 32 in LA last year was nuts. And then he comes out this year and hits 41 bombs. He hit 32 with a minute to go before he got the extra time. What a show, dude. I mean, what a show that guy put on. You figured he'd do something special during the Derby. But I didn't think it was going to be that. The lights are on and he performs. It's really amazing. But like ourselves, probably too, I think we tired ourselves out with excitement during that first round for when the second round rolled around. The energy sort of matched Julio's as well when he only put up a, a dud of a round with only 20 homers in the second round. Unfortunately, fell for what we are like, oh my God, storybook derby storybook this man is going to set records and win a home run derby in his own park and then he just could not he could not hit the ball in the second round he he used up every ounce of energy he needed he needed more of those free Gatorades they were handing out I know Gatorade sponsored the whole event I saw those the the new Gatorade energy drink sponsorships all over the field and I saw the players drinking them as well I think he if he already had one he probably could have used another one just like we also probably could have used another one yeah, but you could only have one because those things have 200 milligrams of caffeine in it. So if you have two, there might be some problems. So maybe Julio needed one. Maybe. Or maybe how about a one and a half? Oof, that's still pushing it. 300 milligrams of caffeine in one sitting? Isn't that a lot? I'm not even a coffee drinker or a caffeine drinker, and even I know that's a lot. That's a lot. I don't know how much caffeine Julio drinks on a daily basis. Some people have really high tolerances. You'd be surprised at the amount of caffeine some people ingest in a day. It's not necessarily good to ingest that much caffeine. I usually keep it to a cup of coffee a day if I'm not doing anything spectacular. So putting down one and a half of those, that's, that's quite a bit for Julio. But if you needed some actual juice there for the second round, it might it might have helped. I, I have a couple notes here. I, I was kind of shocked. He... Do you know his average exit velocity on his home runs there in the second round? It was 99. Think of how low that is for a home run hitter and for how hard Julio hits the ball. He wasn't hitting the ball that hard, really, in that second home run derby round. And I will just give you an example. His opponent, Vlad, who I, there's a great piece on MLB.com breaking down the home run derby results and some of the numbers behind it. All of his rounds, I think Vlad averaged over 105 miles an hour per homer. Uh, on average per homer, which is incredible durability for a player for, through the 60-something home runs you usually hit over the course of an entire derby that you win. 
he managed to sustain that, unlike Julio, who couldn't even get a ball over 430 feet in the second round. Vlad averaged 440 feet in the second round, showing, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And Julio, he won the first lap. He didn't he didn't win the second and didn't get a chance to compete in the third one. So that's the downside of the round Julio had is because he hit 41 and because he had to go first because he was the lower seed, it tired him out. Now, if Pete Alonso had gone before him, if Pete hits 22 to 26 homers, Julio probably breaks that with ease. He saves half his long balls for essentially the next round and then maybe things get easier for him because he didn't have to use as much energy. But as electrifying as the 41 home runs were, you could tell he was gassed. Everybody could tell he was gassed. And that's no knock on Julio. I think anybody would be just totally out of breath after hitting 41 home runs in a round and going max effort on all those swings. In fact, it wasn't 41 swings he had. I mean, he took more than that in the first round. And yeah, you just you just lose the stamina after a certain amount of time. It is a lot of effort that you have to put into hitting those home runs in such a short spurt because it's not the 10 outs anymore. You don't get to take five pitches in between. It is a rapid fire round and you're swinging away as hard as you can. So yeah, he got burned out. If he had gone first, it might've been a different result. Think of or this second. stat. Think of this stat. He had 44 swings and hit 32 homers in regulation. That's incredible efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've never seen anything like it. Again, he hit 32 total last year. This year, he hit 32 before the extra time even started. Nuts. Yeah, Absolutely pretty nuts. pretty insane. It would have been tough for him to win the final, especially with that first round, because Vlad still managed to win, but he had to go second in the he had to go second in the second round. Then he had to turn around and go first in the final against Randy Arozarena which he powered through again, Vlad. I think Vlad's built for the Derby. I think he is, maybe he's not as maniacal as Pete Alonso is with the Derby, but he is built really to sustain through a Derby. And he's showed that off through a couple of Derbies now. Uh, I'm not quite sure if Julio would have, would have pulled that off. We would have been rooting for him, but that would have been a, that would have been a kind of a tough turnaround. People forget in 2019, Vladdy hit over 90 home runs in that Derby. He lost, and Pete Alonso ultimately won the Derby, but everybody remembers that 2019 Derby as the Vladdy Derby because he had the whole swing-off round in the semifinals. They were just going toe-for-toe, and he hit all these balls out of the yard. He hadn't done it in a little bit, but since he re-entered, it wasn't that shocking that he was good at this thing. I mean, it was not that long ago when he was just putting on a show in Cleveland when he was in that last Derby, and he just kind of picked up right where he left off. I think you're right. I think Vladdy's one of the few people probably more built for this than Julio is, as good as Julio was. So you know what? I would say this is the second year in a row that Julio has stolen the show in the Derby, but hasn't won. Which, you can take that however you want. Even though he didn't win, there's still going to be a memory forever of this Derby with Julio attached to it because of what he did in the first round. I want to give another shout out for this derby I've mentioned to you multiple times and we were both kind of awe-inspired when we saw it in the first round. Give a shout out to probably the second crowd favorite, Adley Rutschman, grew up down in, in the Portland area and he put did something that I don't think we've ever seen in the derby. He goes in his first round, hits left-handed and mashes 21 home runs in regulation, gets an extra 30 seconds and proceeds without warm-up right-handed to hit six home runs on six swing, his first six swings in extra time, really catching everyone off guard of, 
oh shit, he's setting, stepping up to the plate right-handed. Oh, he's knocking every pitch out of the park right-handed without warm-up. That was crazy. The fact he switched over to the right side, which people were probably not thrilled about who were sitting in right field, considering there were like no lefties in this derby besides Adley. There were no balls hit to right field, aside from when Adley was up. But the fact he did what he did, and he just casually switches over to the right side and just starts hitting nukes out into the upper deck in left field. That was crazy. And he got so robbed, too. Adley was so good, and everybody is going to not forget about it now, but it's going to be a secondary story because he lost to Luis Robert in the first round, so he didn't even get to move on to the semifinals. That's my one thing with the Derby. If I had to change one thing, I don't want to go back to the 10 outs. I didn't really love that. I like the rapid fire now where guys are hitting more home runs. I would change, however, the whole top four advanced thing rather than having it be a bracket head-to-head. I get why the head-to-head's exciting, but for people like Adley who probably deserve to move on, you get robbed. So I would love to see it go back to the top four at some point. Would you like it to maybe slow down a little bit so we can actually admire the home runs? I did hear some some more valid argument on this point. And since we're at the ballpark, we don't really, we can see all the home runs. It doesn't really matter how fast they're hitting them. For, but for a viewer at home, it's sometimes a little bit hard to catch up with all these home runs they're hitting if they're doing swing, swing, swing. I think they're technically supposed to wait for the ball to land in the seats before they pitch again. But I don't think anyone listens to that. So we don't really get to admire those home runs. I honestly wouldn't be the the biggest opponent of them slowing it down a little bit so we can go like, oh my God, he hit that ball really far. Eh, I don't care that much about that. I mean, they two box it on ESPN where they they show the ball traveling and they still have the player in the box taking his next swing and they usually follow it. I mean, sometimes maybe the camera work isn't perfect, but I don't, I'm indifferent about that. I'm fine with the rapid fire round and just seeing a lot of home runs. I, I still think you can watch the balls fly for the most part. I would just rather see it be top four advance. And you have to really, back to the fans part, I mean, you have to be furious. If you bought home run derby tickets in February for that lower level on right field, you're like, we're catching a ball this time. We're getting we're getting something out there, whether it be BP or the derby. We're getting something. And yet you got half of one round. Sorry, three quarters of one round of left-handed swinging, and that's it. Not great. That's not great. Also, we got to give a shout out to Pete Alonzo. We can't talk about the Derby without talking about him. I think it's so hilarious that this guy legitimately treats this thing as his World Series. Now, I will be transparent on this podcast. Despite it, despite it being an event that's supposed to be fun and just lighthearted, I was genuinely nervous for Julio when he was up there. I was nervous during his first round. I went nuts after the 41 homers. I went I was going nuts when he walked into the box for his second round, and I was a little disappointed when he only came away with 20. I was nervous for Julio because I wanted him to win so badly in his home park. But we're fans. We're fans of the game. We're fans of the Derby. We're allowed to do that. Pete Alonso legit treats this thing like the world's going to end if he doesn't win. I mean, you saw the introductions. Everybody's coming out. They're hopping around. They're putting their hands in the air. They're trying to have fun. And here comes Pete Alonso when they announce his name. Death stare, eyes closed, walking out. He's furious. And then he doesn't even get out of the first round. I mean, listen, I know he's good at this event, but can't you just take a little bit of a chill pill with this? Is Pete Alonso on the hot seat because he can't defeat Julio Rodriguez in the Derby? Oh, he might be. Hot seat Pete Alonso. He's over two against Julio now. Yeah, he might have to like 
slip MLB some money under the table to rearrange the bracket next year so he makes sure he doesn't face Julio until the finals. Julio can do a Jordan three-peat if he beats Pete again next year. Because you know Julio probably is going to do the Derby again next year. The question is, Pete sees himself in the bracket with Julio looking across at him, and Pete has only ever lost in the Derby to Julio Rodriguez. That's it. He's won everything else. And he looks at that, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to pull out. I can't do it. Got to just bite my bullet and go for next year because I can't beat this guy. Our friends were making some jokes that after he lost in the first round, he probably like punched a hole in the wall and left the stadium before the event ended. Other people were joking that he's going to come out with a claim that Major League Baseball rigged the derby and made him use de-juice balls and whatever. I mean, he he just takes it a little too seriously. Again, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be lighthearted. I'm glad he's good at the event. I want to see Pete Alonso keep competing in the derby. I just wish he could crack a smile about it every now and then. And also... Maybe you don't need to meditate and lift weights and do deadlifts before you step in there for the derby. Just my two cents. Maybe you'd be fine without it. It's supposed to be almost a vacation, Pete. It's supposed to be fun. You would think, but not in Pete Alonzo's world. He's like, well, the Mets are never making the World Series, so what's my secondary prize winning the derby? Yeah. Anyway, Home Run Derby was awesome. As a whole, I couldn't have had any more fun being at the event. It was a really good derby. You're going to see much more from us in the vlog this week, so make sure to check that out on YouTube. And you get live reactions from TJ and I, and, and we're going pretty nuts, especially during those Julio rounds, so be sure to check that out. This fall, stream your favorites and discover more with Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus together. Watch the highly anticipated new season of Loki and see the ghosts materialize in Haunted Mansion on Disney Plus. Catch more frights with the Boogeyman and American Horror Story Delicate on Hulu. And on ESPN Plus, get into the action with college football and NFL. All of these and more streaming now. Get the Disney Bundle with plans starting at $9.99 a month. Plans with ESPN Plus starting at $14.99 a month. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Now to the game itself. It was a little bit ho-hum for the Mariners guys when regarding the actual All-Star game. I mean, of the three All-Stars, only two played in being Julio and George Kirby. Kirby gave up a run. Julio walked and struck out. So it was awesome to see them there, but there's not that much to take away from the Mariners guys specifically in this game. There is one big takeaway from this game, though. Shohei heard the chants. He heard them. I was going to wait and try to procrastinate on that a little bit, but I guess since there's nothing else to break down about these Mariners guys, I mean, let's just dive into it. I was juiced up hearing those chants. Okay, so full disclaimer. The All-Star Game was the one event during the week TJ and I were not at. We wanted to go. I I had every intention of going. I figured ticket prices were going to drop because we had tickets for everything else. Our family had gotten tickets for the Derby long before, but we had to pick one or the other because we share a plan with some people. So it was Derby or the All-Star Game. We picked the Derby. I figured All-Star Game tickets, especially the day of, might go down. But man, they set records. They literally set records for tickets high-end ticket prices, it was an hour before it was still 400 bucks. So we were like, okay, this is a little much for an exhibition game. It was $100 more than the actual playoff game in October. So we said, okay, I think we've got to find an alternative option. So we went over to the John Boy Media Watch Party over at Optimism Brewing, which was awesome. We got to meet a bunch of people from John Boy. We watched their stuff all the time. And 
I think we still had a good time, right? Even if we weren't at the actual game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All, all those John Boy guys were, were super nice. And we understand that they had to welcome and talk to tens of people that day. We were talking to Chris Bowes. We were having a conversation with Chris Rose and he was super nice. But it was very obvious that Chris Rose had been through a long all-star game content week and had talked to a lot of people at the watch party. So he, he tried his best. But overall, it was great. The, uh, they, were, they were struggling to get the, the game on the television. But the environment itself was fabulous. We were able to watch everything that was important to us and enjoy the rest of the, rest of the experience otherwise. And Optimism Brewing, by the way, it's a great spot. It is. <laughs> Now let's get back to Shohei. We sidetracked there a little bit. We're sitting there watching at Optimism Brewing with all the John Boy people. And when that chant started and we get the passing update, tweeting about it, and then you hear the actual videos with it roaring throughout the stadium. God, I was so fired up. You're going to have to talk me off the ledge here because I've, I promised myself I was not going to do this. I literally made a promise to myself. I'm not going to let myself get sucked into the Otani hype when it starts. It started way earlier than I thought, to be fair, because I figured it would pick up in the off season and not here in July. But here we are between the chance, Otani acknowledging the chance, saying he spent time in Seattle, thinks the city is beautiful. His interpreter, who's one of his best friends, talking about he grew up a Mariners fan. Him and Luis Castillo were caught on the Japan broadcast after Otani's inning of work on the mound, doing the rock celebration together. Like Otani literally did the Luis Castillo celebration with Luis and there's all this stuff piling up so I need to be driven off the ledge here and and just talk down for why it's not gonna happen because I don't want to let myself do this I'm the wrong person to do that because everybody in that stadium was thinking along the lines of you we met a guy outside the park at Lumen Field I believe he's already featured on on one of our social videos that mm-hmm. we put out this week he had a 17 Mariners Otani jersey and Sunday cream walking around or looking at him like that looks fucking good. That looks like something that should be. And I think Otani might start to think that that could be it. That could be it. He looked pretty good in that teal all-star jersey. I must say, like, it looked totally natural. This is not even me. I mean, okay, I'm not even going to bother lying. I was going to say, this is me being unbiased. No, it's not. I'm being totally biased. Otani did look good in that teal uniform. Like, it looked like he fit right in. Yeah. Yes, he did. Man, it, it's it's so dreamy. It's so dreamy. But I'm glad. I'm glad that happened at the game. I'm, I'm glad everybody, whoever started that, it might have been multiple people, but credit to you guys. Credit to you guys because everybody is thinking along the same lines. It takes the effort of the city to show how much a player is coveted and wanted. And you got one, you got one, I would say, neutral opportunity where the Mariners are not playing on the field and we have an all-star game in a neutral corporate environment. But the diehard fans showed up and they told Otani what they want. They told him, we want you, buddy. We want you to come here. And he didn't say no. He did not say no. Like, it makes me think that the odds are actually better than I originally thought. And again, this is why I don't want to let myself do this. I don't want to let myself get sucked back into this. Because little flashback for those who don't know me prior to this podcast, TJ well knows because he was part of it with me. Six years ago, we let ourselves get sucked into all the narratives very heavily. We were certain he was coming here. Then we got burned for him to go to a team within our own division, and he's tormented us for the last six years. So I really don't want to let myself do this again, but man, 
when you just break down the logistics of it between it seems like he's going to want to stay on the West Coast, if he's not going to go back to the Angels, it feels like that leaves the Mariners, the Dodgers, and maybe the Giants. Like, it feels like they're going to be right in this. And the fact he was so appreciative of those fans who started roaring for him during that game, man, it was crazy. Let me say this, too. If somebody somehow knows who started that chant, I don't know how it's possible to find the origin of it, but if somebody knows who started that chant, please tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or something. We will happily give you a shout-out and give you your credit where credit's due. So exciting. I completely forgot he lived in Seattle for some of the offseason until he mentioned it because he spent some time at Driveline. Now, Shohei, here's my pitch to you as well. You know a better time to live in Seattle than in the offseason? During the season. It's really nice here. I think you'd like it a lot. He saw it himself this week. I would say the weather was pretty nice. Wasn't too hot. Right on the water. Fans were packed throughout the ballpark. People were there to see you, dude. I think people would be showing up to the ballpark every single day to see you if you were here. And one sort of understated storyline that we mentioned, and I think got mentioned among some Mariner circles as well. Who's the one notable Mariner who was not there? It was Ichiro. Yeah, he wasn't. wasn't there. Well, where was he? He was in Japan, right? He was in right? Japan. And we know Ichiro knew exactly when the All-Star game was. We like He's a smart guy. He knows when the All-Star game is. He knows who the biggest star in Major League Baseball is. And he knows where the All-Star game is being played. And he knows that his franchise is now hosting the All-Star game for the third time and wants to, wants to put on its best display possible. And yet he was not there. Now, we remember the first time the Otani sweepstakes were going on back in the offseason of 2017-2018. The detractor, right, for Shohei for coming to Seattle was he did not want to be in Ichiro's shadow. Well, there was no Ichiro there this weekend. He didn't even let himself have the opportunity to put the spotlight on him at all this weekend. Oh, Not at all, which we don't know if it's deliberate or not. But I do think it's interesting because Ichiro's at the ballpark almost every single weekend during the season. But for the biggest weekend of the year in Seattle, he wasn't. That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. See, you got to stop because now you're getting me fired up again. You're you're giving me all these reasons for why it could be a part of the Mariners and Jerry Depoto's grand master plan regarding Otani. Like it's known at this point. It's well known that they are going to be in the fight for him this winter. I think everybody knows it. I think we've had speculation about it for a while that they've been saving up their funds to go after him. And MLB.com had a story this week saying exactly that. I got to give the fans credit though, because... Look, this is basically going to be the last time that we talk heavily about Otani and the Mariners until the offseason starts because that's when it's going to become relevant again. But I think I think I summed it up well in my tweet this week, right? I said, no matter what happens this winter, the fans did their job this week. Like every Mariners fan, especially the ones at that game, deserve a major tip of the cap because they did their job. You left a lasting impression on them, something he is going to remember for a long time and something you better believe he's going to remember when he hits free agency. I did have one more thing on the top of my head that I'm struggling to think of. Oh, oh. here we go. I got it. I got okay. it. Ready? Yes. I have a proposition for you. Okay, actually, 
before you give that proposition, because this is going to be long, I was just going to add in two. Ichiro wasn't there, but him and Griffey were messing around in the dugout during the All-Star game, hugging and high-fiving. Ken Griffey Jr. is part owner of the team now. Mm -hmm. Minority owner. It's just another piece of the plan. But anyway, let's hear your proposition. Here's another pitch to Shohei. Regardless of if he chooses the Mariners or not, I'm going to offer Shohei Otani our platform here on the Marine Layer podcast to announce his free agent decision if he so do so. LeBron James, when he made his decision back before the 2010 basketball season, uh, 2010-2011, went on ESPN and wanted to make a big deal as possible. You know what, Shohei? I know you might not. I know you're not one for the the enormous spotlight that you attract. So I give you the option instead of ESPN or whatever you decide to announce your decision on to come on a smaller podcast with a smaller audience. So I think that would be more your more your speed there, Shohei. The decision is yours. You're invited on. Open invite. We'll do a YouTube live stream. That way we don't have to wait to post it. Everybody can just hop on the stream. Hopefully we'll have hundreds of thousands of views in there as he hops in and says, I'm going to take my talents to the Pacific Northwest and join the Seattle Mariners. Isn't this crazy to think about the last thing on Shohei? This will be the biggest free agent in any sport since LeBron. The biggest one. Oh, it might be ever. Yeah, it might be ever, which is crazy to think about for a Major League Baseball offseason, but... That's legitimately what it will be this offseason. We're not excited about this at all, as you can probably tell from listening to this segment. In fact, we're we're dreading it. You can tell by the tones of our voices that, you know, if Shohei comes here or not, we're pretty indifferent. Like, it doesn't really matter to us at all. Team doesn't need him, right? I mean, you know, they'll be fine without him. We, it's, we're just sitting here saying, eh, it is what it is. Well, make sure the first place you listen after Shohei decides is this podcast, because you will either hear us happy or broken again. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. Stay for, tuned. For those for those who couldn't tell the sarcasm, I hope you, the sarcasm was echoed there on our airwaves. If not, yeah, we're really excited about this Otani thing this winter. And I hate that I am because I keep wanting to be talked off the ledge and just let myself say, yeah, he's going to be a Dodger. Just forget it. But after this weekend... I can't do it. Like, I'm getting sucked back in. I hate it, but I'm getting sucked back in. I think you need a distraction, Lyle. I have a suggestion. Let's hear a little bit about the Major League Baseball draft this past weekend. We had Joe Doyle on, talked to him yesterday, and Joe does a great job at Future Stars covering the Major League Baseball draft. We got to meet him in person, which was awesome. He was there at Lumen Field before the first round of the draft on Sunday. And he was nice enough to come say hello to us. And he is the first recurring guest, which is great. And, you know, I gave him an award, gave him a round of applause, and he opted on to break it down with us. He's great. I love Joe. He's fantastic. I mean, he knows the stuff so well. There's not many people out there, I feel like, that know the draft better than Joe. And he can go so in-depth with so many guys, which has been which is awesome. In fact, that's why we kind of steered away from doing any draft talk on our last show. I mean, TJ gave the guys their credit where credit's due. We talked about, okay, in the first round with their three picks, the Mariners drafted Cole Emerson, Johnny Parmelo, Ty Pete. We kind of left it at that because we knew we were going to have the conversation with Joe this week. And we said, let's let the expert give everybody a breakdown on what to expect from all of these guys. So that's what we did. And it doesn't just stop there. The Mariners made some really exciting picks after the first round too, which we made sure to ask Joe about, which he broke down fantastically. And it just made me that much more excited. 
I'll give you guys one name too. You'll hear it in the interview, but Teddy McGraw. Oh, that might be the steal of the draft. People were talking about that today on Thursday. The Mariners might have just got the steal of the draft in the third round. And pay attention to the type of players they're drafting and the type of pitchers that they aimed at after the first round. Something I didn't really pick up on, but Joe made a point to point it out. And I think it's really fascinating, however you view how the Mariners develop pitchers. I thought it was a very, very interesting point. So let's not delay any longer. Let's get to our interview with Joe Doyle. All right, we welcome on Joe Doyle, a senior analyst at Future Star Series and the host of the Overslot podcast, the first recurring guest on this show. Joe, congratulations. That is uh, that's quite an honor. You are also the first guest on this podcast. So I know you got some things set up there behind you. Uh, I think a plaque might be necessary for that. Yeah, yeah. Where's the certificate, the plaque, the, the lanyard? Something, guys. I need something. <laughs> and it was Thanks good to back, Joe. Fi- I do appreciate it. It was good to finally get to meet you in person this weekend. We're all out there on Sunday inside Lumen Field at that just awesome draft setup with great weather uh, and a festive environment. Getting ready for three Mariners first round picks, which we'll get on here in a second. But overall, I mean, that environment was cool. There were a ton of ton of people in there. We got our signature Rob Manford moment when he got booed as shit when the Astros were picking. I think we checked all the boxes. I think in terms of a Major League Baseball event, I think Seattle handled it beautifully. And that Rob Manfred moment, listen, if you are going to voluntarily elect to play highlights of the Astros beating the Mariners in Seattle, I mean, you're kind of digging your own grave. So that was a beautiful moment. I've got to say, I mean, I'll give Roger Goodell credit for this because when he's announcing draft picks and walks up to the stage for the NFL draft... He's embraced it at this point. He takes on the booing. He razzes the fans sometimes. Like, he owns it. Manfred's not so great at that. I mean, you saw during that Astros pick, you could see the anger on his face when people were booing him. And it almost threw him off for a second. So, I think he needs a little more practice before he kind of hones that thing in. I think Rob thinks that everyone really, really likes him. But in reality, he's just made it so it's easy not to like him. And so he gets very flustered when it comes out that, you know, he's being like booed off the stage. So I don't exactly know. I think you're totally right. I think what makes Roger Goodell kind of lovable is that he, maybe lovable isn't the word, but he embraces the the hate. He embraces the the tradition of booing the commissioner off the stage. Roger Goodell looked very frazzled and annoyed. I, I was fine with it. <laughs> Especially that second look he gave, it was it was the I can't remember if we mentioned it on the on the podcast that uh, that we released now today recording on Wednesday, but uh, a couple of days earlier when you hear this on Friday, but like a substitute teacher who had lost control of the class <laughs> and that just disappointed. Like, come on, guys, yes. just just listen to me for a second. Look on his face that he had just absolutely no control over. But I guess that's kind of what he gets for for some of the decisions he's made. That's a good analogy. My mom was a teacher. That, that's a that's a very good analogy. I Rob Rob needs to get a grip. I mean, he should have just embraced it, but whatever. We're not petulant children. <laughs> so, Joe, before we start really diving into the specifics of all these Mariners draft picks, I was actually hoping you could talk TJ and I off the ledge a little bit because when these draft picks happened on Sunday night, TJ and I were sitting there and we kind of been watching the draft play out. Or I say kind of, we'd very closely been watching the draft play out. 
And we were hoping the Mariners were going to get some college bats early. And the reason for that is it felt like they just had this wave of players come up that now form this young Mariners nucleus with Kirby, Julio, Logan, Cal Raleigh, et cetera. And then it feels like there's another wave in the deep, deep low ends of the minors with Celestine, with Lazaro Montez, with Cole Young, et cetera, et cetera. But all those guys feel fairly far away where it feels like there's a big gap in the middle. And we were hoping they were going to supplement some of that. And we were a little disappointed at the time when they took all these high school guys because it just feels like no reinforcements are coming outside of Harry Ford in terms of your top prospects in the next couple of years. But maybe you can help talk us off the ledge of why that's the wrong mindset. Yeah, I pushed out a tweet after uh, after the first round and I said, boy, seven of the Mariners top eight prospects can't drink a beer. And I think it's 10 of the top 12 or 10 of the top top 13. And actually, when Brian Wu graduates, it'll be all of the top seven. And nine of the top 11 will be under the age of 21. So listen, I think the ultimate uh, goal in any draft is to take the player that you believe is most talented and the player that you believe you can expunge the most uh, production out of. And to your guys' point, I do think there was some college bats there that Seattle was very excited about, whether that be Matt Shaw or Tommy Troy, Braden Taylor, Enrique Bradfield Jr. Those were the ones that I kept hearing, but they were all gone. And so when all of those guys came off the board, I'm sure Seattle had to um, pivot a little bit. I know that they've always really liked Cole Emerson, but they probably had to pivot a bit and they did end up taking three high schoolers. All three of those high schoolers have uh, sensational upside for my money. So um, had to get a little bit more creative with their money, but I mean, sheesh, they've got so much talent coming up through the low minors. And if this is a team that needs to make some deals, some trades, things of that nature this winter, uh, they definitely have the ammunition for it now. I think that last tier of college bat, it would have been Chase Davis. No, I don't know if you had heard anything of the Mariners being interested in him as well, but you know, it's before the Cardinals pick and Lyle and I are sitting there and it's like, well, Chase Davis is the last you know, real college bat in that first tier before you really would have to stretch and and pick someone way over their draft value. So I, I don't know if there was really anything legit there or any smoke between the Mariners and him before having to really settle on all those high schoolers. I, you know, I hadn't heard a Chase Davis connection to the Mariners. Let me rephrase. I, I know Seattle liked him, but it was going to be an underslot deal. And I don't think there was there was enough suitors with Chase Davis in the first round that were going to pay him more than I think Seattle was. Um, and plus, I think this front office just really has an affinity for players that play up the middle. I mean, how many guys have we seen that they really focus on that are just athletes that have multiple different routes of getting to the big leagues? So I think with Chase, you're looking at um, a potential left fielder who's not necessarily a, a terribly decorated runner. So I don't know if he would have fit their draft strategy perfectly, but um, I do think after those four college bats were gone, um, they had the plan of switching to high school right away. So let's start off with Colt Emerson, their pick at 22. We talk about upside here, but what's most intriguing about him for a high schooler is that you mentioned he has probably the highest floor of these first three picks. He got has a little bit of similarity to Cole Young. I mean, um, a, a Midwest high school per se, a guy up the middle who might not stick at short, but has a really nice tool uh, hitting at the plate uh, with the left-handed swing. What do you like so much about Cole? Well, Cole was one of the best hitters in the country last year for Team USA across the tournament cycles, across the showcase cycles. Beautiful left-handed swing, plays gap to gap, has pull side power, 
he has more power than what Cole Young had at the same stage. Uh, I, I think Colt Emerson is just a Midwest boy. Like I, I interviewed him, gosh, it would have had to have been November or December of last year. And he said that his favorite meal is going to Subway and just getting turkey and cheese. Like that's it. He just, he gets mayo on it. There's no lettuce. There's no tomatoes. There's, he gets double meat because he wants the protein. Like he's just one of those guys, you know, he's just kind of a farm guy. So um, I think he's going to hit a ton. I think he's going to hit for a bit of power. You know, he could be a guy that runs into 17 to 23 home runs is, is kind of what I'm foreseeing. Uh, I do think he ends up at uh, at third base, maybe in the mold of a Daniel Murphy type of a player, but he's a fantastic human being. He's just a very, very nice kid. He's extremely young. He's barely 18 years old. So I think when you check all of those different boxes with Colt Emerson, um, it's just it's what Seattle has targeted, and it's it's a control-the-zone type of a pick. I think Colt and Lyle should go grab lunch sometime. I think they'd have a lot in common. Is that your order too, Lyle? Are you just a turkey, cheese, and mayo? Not exactly that, but I don't mind Subway, to put it lightly. I mean, so we went to the L.A. public market once. We told this story a couple weeks back, and I was so so in the mood for Subway that I walked across the street and got Subway while everybody else got stuff at the L.A. public market. So TJ was smirking as you kind of told that Colt Emerson story, and I knew exactly what he was thinking because, <laughs> yeah, we do have some similarities in that way. So maybe if we ever interview him, we can do like a sit down with a couple of mics, but we can sit at a Subway and, and maybe get him to sponsor it or something. There you go. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Although I will say, I don't know if Subway particularly wants to be known as the place that you only get turkey and cheese on a sandwich and walk out, but that's fair. hey, everyone, <laughs> everyone has their everyone has their order. Right, right, right. It is interesting what you noted about Emerson's power, though, because that was going to be one of my questions: is is he almost a carbon copy of Cole Young in the sense of hit tool first, not going to hit for a lot of pop? But it sounds like you believe he could really hit for some power as he continues to develop. Yeah, he's a much more physical kid. Uh, he's a he's an entire year younger than Cole Young at this same stage. And he's got a barrel chest. He's got broad shoulders. He's got more bat speed than what Cole Young had at this same point. Do I think he's going to hit for more power than Cole Young? Yes, I, I do. I, I think his swing covers the entire zone a little bit better than Cole for power. Whereas Cole is really just a guy that has showcased power in that lefty loop zone down and in. So, you know, I think Cole Emerson is going to be able to take some fastballs at the top of the zone over the fence and hit those uh, mistake-breaking pitches and off-speed pitches uh, for more power than than what Cole Young has been able to do at this point. But the fact that he, I, I can't stress this enough, the fact that he is an entire year younger than Cole Young. Uh, Cole Young, I believe, just turned 20. Colt Emerson's going to play the entire 2024 season as a 19-year-old. Uh, he's just that you know, he's a very, very young player. So I think there's more upside and projectability with that regard, but he is just as big as Cole Young already. So I don't know if the body is going to get too much bigger. Where do they shift these guys around in the field? If you're going to take a look at the the lower levels of the minor league system, you got a bunch of shortstops down there, but again, we know Cole Young probably once he gets to the big league level, won't stick at shortstop. Uh, and, and you mentioned Colt Emerson also might not. So how do you think they would, would structure that in the minor leagues if these guys eventually start playing together? I don't think they're going to worry about where they're playing on the diamond until Arkansas, until like double A or triple A. Like for the time being, let's say you sign these guys right now. You could play Colt Emerson at shortstop. You could move. And this is Modesto. I'm assuming you move Cole Young up to Everett. You put Colt Emerson at shortstop. You put Axel Sanchez at second second base, and you rotate those guys in Modesto. 
And then Ty Pete, I, you know, I don't know what their plan is going to be with Ty Pete, but you could DH one of these guys. You could put him at third base, you could put him at second base, shortstop. You can find ways to get all of these guys on mm -hmm. the field and get them their reps where they need to. But I don't think finding a definitive home is going to be, it might not ever be a, a priority. I might, might just be one of those guys that, you know, like a Marwin Gonzalez or a Jeff McNeil or, you know, a guy that can play all three infield positions and depending on the day, uh, that's where they're going to play. So I, I wouldn't think too much into it right now, but considering Seattle's shortstop depth in the minor leagues right now, I would expect that, you know, if they are going to make a deal this July or this winter, like the shortstop crop that they currently have has got to be an area where they think that they could lean into to make it, to make a trade. Where does Celestine play into all of that? I mean, he's a little bit behind all these guys, but is it the same idea that he's not going to be pigeonholed at one spot and they'll just move him around until they get to around that double A level? I don't think so. I think wherever Celestine is, he's going to play shortstop. He's the most decorated mm -hmm. uh, defender of all of these guys that we've talked about. Um, he has the most projection. He has the long levers. He's got the high waist. He's got the body fluidity. Like He's the guy... He's the best athlete that is going to be the best shortstop wherever he ends up. He might be the best defensive shortstop of all this group already right now. He's probably a better defender than Cole Young at this stage. So um, like you said, he is a level behind. He might not. We'll see whether or not he plays in the Arizona Complex League this year. I'm not sure what the plan is going to be, but I would expect in 2024, he's still going to start at the Arizona Complex League. I can't imagine that they throw him to Modesto as an 18 year old. So. Um, point is wherever Felney and Celestin is, you can probably bet that he's going to be playing shortstop 90% of the time. Let's move on to Johnny Farmello, who they took at 29. First of all, love his name. Second of all, it's intriguing because he looks like he slots in not only as a, as a thumper in the middle of the lineup, but he's also a, a supreme athlete. It looks like he's going to play the corner outfield, but I see double plus runner. I see great arm in the outfield as well. Combined with that power, this is where I think the upside really, really starts showing when we, we'll talk about Ty Pete here in a little bit too. But the upside mm -hmm. with this pick in terms of what could be in the middle of the lineup really starts to show. Yeah, I mean, I kind of liken Johnny to, this isn't a great comparison because he didn't have a great Mariners career. But I think if you could have extracted the best 155 games you could have out of Jake Fraley that's kind of what I see in Johnny Farmello like a potential 260 265 guy high walks I, I I personally think if Jake Fraley could have gotten his feet under him had a full-time role played a bit more center field like I think he could have been a 25 home run person I, I just think he had a good feel for the barrel um the the comp that I used and this wasn't a comp but like the player role that I used that's like the 95th percentile expectation would be like the, the physical tools that Cody Bellinger has in terms of like the real ability to run the real bat speed, the physical projectable frame, the center field role, the left-handed hitter, like that's, you're never going to slap a Cody Bellinger comp on anyone because what he's done in the league has been sensational, especially his first few years. But it's the type of unicorn traits that you just can't really find in most players. You don't find a guy with double-plus raw power. You don't find a guy that's a double-plus runner. With both of those things where he can actually play center field and he's a left-handed hitter. So there's a huge volatility um, margin here. Like There's a chance that Johnny Farmello 
doesn't ever truly take to hitting and he never gets past double A. But I think when you look at the ceiling of Johnny Farmello, it's kind of hard to find anyone else in this class that can match what he could eventually become. But that could take some time. You mentioned the hitting, um, which I may think for this comparison, which I saw on Twitter, is really interesting. I'm staring at a side-by-side of his load and his swing with Christian Yelich, who was also a very noted high school hitter. I think he was a first baseman in high school and then moved to the outfield. But I think I thought that was a little curious when I when I saw it. And but I see the similar I see the similarities at least in this in the screen grab that I'm staring at. Is there is there anything there? Uh, in terms of like what the player could eventually become, I don't hate that. Uh, I will say, having watched Johnny over the last twelve months, his swing was different every month, and I think I've said this elsewhere. Like he'd have a toe tap one week, and then he'd have a drop step the next week, and then he'd have a hand hitch, and then he'd have what we call a uh, a wizard flick, which is where you kind of flick it into place and then drop it into the into the slot. Like Johnny would. He sometimes he would take a big leg kick like he had a different swing every month. And I think it really it caused problems with him developing consistency and timing and being able to like go up to the plate with a plan. So in terms of like and another thing with Yelich was like when he was in high school, he could not hit a homer. He had the flattest line drive swing of anyone in that class. But everyone always said like, this kid's got big bat speed. He's got big leverage, like long levers. He could eventually hit for power. And it took it took Yelich a long time. I mean, he wasn't a home run hitter until, what was he, 26 at that point? I mean, he was a, I could be wrong about this, but I think he was like an 8 to 12 home run hitter a couple of years into his career. And then it finally clicked. So that could be the route that you see Johnny Farmello go. But with Yelich, he could always hit. Like he could always hit. And we were waiting for the power. It's kind of the opposite for Farmelo. Farmelo's got the bat speed. Like, he's got the power. Now we're just waiting for a consistent approach and kind of polishing up the rough edges. So is Ty Pete's bat as good as advertised? If we're going to transition to our third guy here, there are people saying this is one of the best bats in the class, and the Mariners managed to get him at the end of the first round. So it seems like there's a lot to kind of love here. Another guy that just needs consistent reps. I mean, um, he had a really weird year. Uh, You know, he was a pitcher and a lot of people thought he was going to be a pitcher. And then he walked off the mound with an injury and then it just became all about the bat and he added weight. He added impact this past, um, this past winter. And now he's a much more physical player. I think when you look at Ty Pete, you do look at the power. Ty Pete's kind of got that, you know, big whippy bat swing from the left side. He really gets to the low pitch as well. Kind of a turn and burn type of a kid. I'll be interested to see. I do believe in the bat, but just like Farmelo, he's going to have to develop some consistency in hitting. My question with Ty Pete is what are they going to do with him on the diamond? Because does he have an arm injury? Can he handle shortstop? Will he get surgery so he can play shortstop? Can he play third base with the arm injury? Is he too big for second base? Like, obviously, he's an incredibly decorated athlete. And he can do a lot of things, but where is he at physically and how is that going to hamstring him a little bit, both at the plate and in the field? I think he's going to be a really fascinating guy to watch how he's deployed. There's no chance they put him back on the mound then, right? You never know. I mean, I I would think, I don't know anything about Ty Pete's injury. Um, I do know that it was an arm injury. He walked off the mound. He didn't pitch again. So I I don't know the status of, of, you know, if it's his UCL, if it's just a forearm strain, it, 
I don't know where he's at. And so uh, I think it'll be up to the Mariners staff. They probably already know exactly what they're going to do with him, but it'll probably be up to them to decide whether or not he's physically capable of pitching or if they, if they worry about him pitching and they're just going to sacrifice 18 months of offensive development, uh, you probably don't want to go down that route. I would just have him stick with the bat. Say his arm is healthy then. Where, like you said, the question could be thrown out there. Is he too big for second base? So then would he be a shortstop? Does he handle the position well enough? Yeah, he's a really good athlete. He's just a big kid. You know, he's just a really big kid. So um, he got I, Colt Emerson's the exact same way. Like he was when I interviewed Colt, he was 180 pounds. And when he came in, when I interviewed him again, three months later, he was 205 pounds and he looked like a buffalo. Like the kid just got so strong and so dense so quickly that's kind of what Ty Pete like Ty Pete just really filled out like he's a really physical looking kid now so um I don't know what they're gonna do with Pete like I know that he's athletic enough to handle third base there's no question about it I just know I just wonder if his arm is healthy enough to handle it right now or if he's gonna need surgery if if he's gonna need it worked on like I said I want to stress I don't know where he's at medically with that arm he could be at a hundred percent but my guess would be because he was announced as a shortstop, he's just going to bat. I don't think he's going to pitch. So is there, I know you keep harping on, you don't know. Is there any speculation that he could miss some actual time? No, like, yeah, like I said, I don't even know. The only things that I know are, you know, he he walked off the mound under his own power with a clear arm injury. He didn't pitch again the rest of the year. Um, and he focused on the bat. And right now, that's kind of all I know. Usually, I dig into those types of things a little bit. But between you and me, I mean, I didn't have Pete in the in the conversation where he is. I, I think I had him in the 60 to 70 range just simply because of the question marks. But um, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm not sure anybody's really going to know until uh, these guys sign and maybe they get some complex work in. Let's transition to Ben Williamson here real quick. A bit of a money-saving pick in the second round, a senior sign, but he really broke out this year. Didn't hit for much power his first three years of college. Slugged over 660 this past season at William & Mary. A really intriguing profile. He did really well on the Cape in Hyannis. Shout out you, Lyle. Um, so so what is there <laughs> to, to like so much about uh, Ben Williamson? Yeah, so with Ben, I think it's just he's a really mature, polished hitter. Like I, I think mechanically, I don't want to take any wind out of this out of the kid's sails. Mechanically, it is a little unique. Like he's got the really high hands, and he drops them into the uh, zone late, and he kind of chops at the ball a little bit, and he does have to catch like a breaking ball out in front to to homer. So I don't know if he's necessarily going to be the slugger that a lot of people kind of think he's going to be. I think he's more of a hitter and less of a slugger. But what people probably aren't talking about enough with Williamson is the glove. I think he is an above average defender at third base. He played a little bit of shortstop this year. Um, he's a senior sign and he didn't get tested a ton at William & Mary just because of the of the conference that he was in. But like you said, he held his own at Hyannis and I think Seattle has always taken a ton of emphasis in how these guys handle themselves with a wood bat um, for my money he's going to be just inside the top 30 but he's probably going to have a pretty good opportunity to uh, shoot up boards pretty quickly i'll be interested to see what they do with this swing maybe they don't touch it maybe they uh, want to tinker with it a little bit and try and get him into more of a power leveraged position but for now for me um, he's more of a uh, 
uh, average to solid average hitter with potential for average power and an above average glove, which is a very, very good player. Just probably not the um, slugging archetype that his baseball card currently would project him to be. So does he project to be more like Hogan Windish than, say, Tyler Locklear? Uh, I actually I don't think either one of those guys are terribly fair comparisons. Tyler Locklear okay. is a slugger. And he's also a first baseman, and he's not a very good mover. And then Hogan Windish is exactly the same. Hogan Windish is a carbon copy of Ty France being forced into second base still. So I don't think either one of those guys is necessarily a great call. Um, I would say, man, like who's a good example of a of a an above average athlete at third base that Seattle has had in recent years? Like, I know he wasn't great here, but almost like how David Bell performed or Jeff Cirillo. Jeff Cirillo was much better in Milwaukee, but um, that type of a player, like a hit over power, but also a really good mover at the position. So you got to go back a little bit before you can find a third baseman that kind of represents what Williamson is or could be. Recently, like he's not Seager. He's not Beltre. He's not Suarez. He's not Ryan Healy. He's none of those guys. He's He's a better athlete than all those guys I listed. So why should people be so excited about Teddy McGraw? Because they got him in the third round. He's coming off an injury. But I know people are really excited about this pick. So what is there to love about McGraw? Yeah, I had to, I had uh, Teddy McGraw, a top 30 guy, coming into the year as early as late January, early February before the season started. Um, but he goes down with his second UCL injury. I do want to say it's not a second Tommy John. It was a UCL brace. Um, so it's more of an eight or a nine month um, recovery, but it's still a UCL injury. So um, I think that's important to note. Uh, listen, this this spring before he got hurt, you know, he was 95, 96 up to 98 with uh, massive sinking action and a slider that was up to 91. So I hope that he's able to come back to full strength. The second elbow injury is always a little bit concerning, but Whenever you're talking about a guy that lives in the mid 90s and he's got an upper 80s slider and he's got a mid 80s changeup that at least flashed at times, three pitch mix, I think there's a potential for a starter here. Just kind of depends on how he comes back. I wouldn't expect him to pitch right out of the gate in 2024. Like, this is a guy that has barely pitched in the last two years. Seattle has to ramp him up in a very uh, unique way, I think. So, and he's still recovering from the UCL uh, surgery. So, I would expect him to maybe spend the first month or so at the Arizona Complex League. And then once he's able to throw multi-inning outings, maybe you see him head out and, um, you know, take the Darren Bowen approach uh, approach where he's working two or three inning outings in Modesto. And hopefully, I mean, the hope is by June or July of next year, you know, you maybe have Teddy McGraw throwing four or five inning outings. But I wouldn't expect a ton from him this year or this next year. 2025 would probably be the year where I'm like, all right, let's let's let him loose. See what it looks like over you know eighty innings in the year, the Brian Wu type of a thing. Um, but interesting that Seattle targeted so extreme sinker ballers. Um, he's going to be something that Seattle hasn't had much of. I'm going to follow up with you on those sinker ballers because we have a couple other to touch on before we wrap this up. But when I see Kendall Rogers tweet out, there are people at Wake Forest who thought this dude was better than Rhett Louder, who went eight, mm-hmm. went eight. Mm-hmm. Um, seven, that, but, yeah. like seven, like wow. And he's sitting the there available in the third round. 
the stuff is better. The stuff is better. I mean, Rhett Lauder was a 92 to 94 generic fastball. This is not a hit on Rhett Lauder. He's one of the most polished col- uh, college uh, starting pitchers I've ever seen. But it was 92 to 94 with generic shape. The slider for Lauder was 82 to 84, touching 85 with solid shape, but fantastic command. And then the changeup was plus. It was a fantastic changeup. That being said, Rhett Lauder was as successful as he was because he could pitch backwards. He could throw any pitch in any count and put it anywhere he wanted. Teddy McGraw's stuff is a half tick better in just about every area, but he never showed, he hasn't had the ability to show command for those pitches yet. You never saw Rhett Lauder throw a 90 mile an hour slider. You never saw Rhett Lauder throw a 98 mile an hour sinker. Um, So I think the upside for Teddy McGraw is there. And and like you said, in the third round, if he's healthy, even if he's a bullpen arm, it's a pretty explosive get. What about these sinker ballers that you mentioned? That That's the thing I think I took away when looking at the results for this Mariners draft. Just a couple other of these guys. I mean, talk about just like stuff, power sinkers. Brody Hopkins out of Winthrop in the sixth round. Ty Cummings out of Campbell in the seventh round. And then in the twelfth round, Logan Evans out of Pitt. All of these guys have that in common. I mean, they throw a tumbling, whether it be two-seamer or just straight-up sinker. That all profiles really well with a lot of upside in their other pitches as well. Which which of those guys really stands out the most to you? Well, I'll throw in too Ernie Day at Campbell, who I believe was like the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, eleventh, thirteenth round pick, like somewhere in there. Ernie Day, uh, he's the exact same way, ninety two to ninety four with funk out of a short arm sinker, and he's got the big slider. Like, and then Elijah Dale, who I think is more of a project, is the exact same thing. Like, he throws really hard. And he's got a huge slider. So they drafted like five or six of these guys. I I don't, I think it's interesting. If you look back at the Seattle Mariners over the last three or four years, their best relievers have been the Kendall Gravemans, the Andres Munoz, the uh, Justin Topa this year. Paul Seawald is such an outlier that I won't bring him up, but I think they drafted a Paul Seawald too. They've had a lot of success with these two-seam guys, and so much so that they've added a two-seamer to George uh, Kirby's repertoire. So I don't know if it's a... it's It sure seems like a purposeful approach to go for two-seam sinker and big spin slider type guys. I don't know whether or not any of these guys are going to be starting pitchers. My gut would say they're going to try Brody Hopkins as a starter just because he's such a fantastic athlete. Um, but the other guys might just be quick moving, high velocity, two pitch guys, which those guys, I was telling another guy this earlier today. I said, if you can just draft only these types of players and it avoids you the need to go spend $18 million on Joaquin Benoit or, you know, a player like that, like spend money on the reliever market. That's a pretty good approach to any given draft. Before we wrap this up, Joe, you've touched on so many guys here already. Is there anybody that you really like that either we have not brought up yet or that was drafted much later that nobody in general is talking about where you circle them and say, this is somebody people should keep an eye on? Well, I mean, the first guy that comes in mind is is definitely Brody Hopkins. Um, let me just pull up my notes here. But I, I personally had Brody Hopkins as a third rounder in this class. He went in the sixth. Um, he was 
on the Mount Rushmore of the best athletes that I watched in this entire draft class. Watched him play center field, a four Winthrop. I watched him jump over a catcher and score on an infield single. He leaped over the guy and scored as for an infield single uh, on an infield single. I watched him touch 99 on the mound. I watched him throw a 90 mile an hour slider on the mound. He moves like Matt Brash. I mean, it's a really insane operation in a private workout with another team. He ran the 40 yard dash and did a, a backflip dismount at the end of it for absolutely no reason. I don't know why he would do that, but he just did that. So I don't know what Brody Hopkins is going to be. He's got to throw more strikes, but I think he's so green uh, that Seattle's probably going to try and keep him in the rotation and just see if it's the, like the 2021 Matt Brash approach. Very different pitchers, very different stuff. But Matt Brash in 2021 was a starter, unbelievable athlete, still is. Uh, but they just started him because we think this guy could be something incredible. Now, Matt Brash never ironed out the command to the point where he was able to obviously start as we've seen that. But I think you're going to see something similar from Hopkins. Like he's probably going to go out, throw five innings, walk four or five people. He's not going to post the strikeouts unless he switches to primarily throwing the slider. If he just sticks with throwing 99 to 100, he's not going to have the strikeouts that uh, Matt Brash did. But if this guy, and I'll say this on this show, if Brody Hopkins moves to the bullpen, he's going to be throwing... 99 to 101 mile an hour sinkers with 90 mile an hour sliders and they're going to be more explosive and like insane looking than what Andres Munoz throws. The thing that makes Andres Munoz so hard to hit is his two pitches don't move a lot, but they tunnel very, very, very long, very late. So nobody can hit that slider. This is going to be like more like Dustin May, like boring auction like boring action like a foot and a half into the righties knuckles a foot and a half slider uh sweepers like it's going to be pretty outrageous stuff and that's not to like totally hype the kid up because he's got a long ways to go but there just quite simply were not a lot of players that i watched this year that could do that could single-handedly do what brody hopkins can do so he's my favorite player in this class and i think he's uh, an unbelievable athlete you can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Doyle, M-I-L-B. He, no one breaks down the draft better than Joe. It was great meeting you this week, Joe. Uh, it's great having the festivities here in Seattle this weekend. We can get everyone nationally together to watch some amazing festivities. The draft was very entertaining. The derby was, and the game was as well. And it was overall great. So, Joe, we really appreciate you hopping on with us and, uh, and recapping this draft. It's exciting, and we're looking forward to watching these guys play. All right, guys, I appreciate uh, being on your show again, and I appreciated meeting both of you. You're both very, very nice. And thank you for the continued support, and uh, I hope to see you around more. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joe Doyle, and hope you learned a little bit more about the Mariners draft class. It's an exciting group of guys. There were some picks later in the draft that are really, really exciting, and the Mariners are high on, Joe Doyle is high on, and as a result, you should all be high on and start following these guys as they make their way through the minors. So we appreciate the time with Joe, love the conversation, and we're excited to see some of these players start to get rolling. With that, that'll just about wrap up this edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know the drill. If you want to listen to the full-form audio podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. You want the full video podcast, you can do so by following us on YouTube. 
All our video podcasts are there. Make sure to rate, review, subscribe, like, comment. Be sure to give us a five-star review. It helps us out a bunch. And as always, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at Marine Layer Pod. Be sure to stay tuned for that vlog this week. We've got a bunch more all-star content coming that we still got to get out. You guys will enjoy that and that vlog. We're really looking forward to sharing with you guys. It gives you some behind the scenes of what our week looked like, some of the people we met, some of the content we did. We're excited to share it. So for TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon. 